warm ourselves by the fire of Torah. And thank you for the, uh, for the flower. Okay. We are live. I have just received the, word, the official word that we are live. And we are live in the book of Bamidbar, in the Parsha of, Nes of Neso. And uh, I have three or four um, issues of note, I hope of note, to talk about on this Parsha. There, I just want to make sure that I have that so that I can get the questions from people. Parshat Naso is the second Parsha. Wow, we're very microphoned. Um, is the second Parsha of uh, the Book of Bamidbar, <coughs> the Book of Numbers. And uh, I want to talk, first of all, um, about the idea that it, that it begins with of Nazir. Nazir being someone who dedicates um, his life, because there were no female Nazarites uh, in ancient times, his life to uh, God, but there's also a temporary Nazir. That is, I'm devoting a, a year or two or three or whatever. They don't cut their hair, they don't drink wine, and this, of course, reminds you who, whose hair is significant in the Torah, Samson. Samson, remember, is not supposed to have his hair cut. Um, his hair is cut by whom? Everybody thinks Delilah. This is a good bar bet. It's actually Delilah hires a barber. Read the story. She doesn't cut it. But you can bet someone whether Delilah cuts Samson's hair, and you will win. Uh, so, um, right, she hires someone to cut his hair. Uh, and the idea behind that is when you say his strength is in his hair, it's not that like it's really in his hair. It's in the keeping the vow that he made to God. And by cutting his hair, he breaks the vow that he made to God. Um, somehow, uh, apparently, running around with uh, Philistine women is not part of the vow. But cutting your hair, that's part of the vow. Um, so in any case, uh, the idea, of the, the idea of the Nazarite is interesting because the rabbis are very ambivalent about the notion of being ascetic, that is self-denying, to honor God. Um, they don't entirely like that. You know, the Judaism is not a tradition, as other traditions are, where you can't drink alcohol or you can't drink coffee or you can't have sex or you can't, I mean, we don't have celibate um, priests in Judaism, even, and not, not only is not celibate rabbis, but literally celibate priests in the temple. Priests were also married, also expected to have children. Uh, there was one rabbi, Ben Zoma, who was celibate in the, in the Mishnah, and the other rabbis criticized him. He said, I'm married to the Torah. But the other rabbis did not like that. I mean, we don't, obviously now, in, in our modern world, we might see Ben Zoma's sexuality as a more problematic and complicated thing than traditionally, who knows why he was celibate, but the idea classically is that that was not a good thing. Um, and uh, so the, nonetheless, 
the ideal of self-denial in service of a goal is something that everybody can identify with. And, and, the, and I've, I certainly think that it is true, for example, that if you're a priest and you don't have a family, there are certain limitations to your service that don't exist. I mean, in rabbinical school and among rabbis, we're always talking about how do you balance your family and your congregation all the time. You don't have that if you're a priest. And so there is a, a temptation in any calling to say, you know, I want to I deny myself to be part of this calling, but the Jewish tradition uh, does not, um, by and large, approve of that, although I shouldn't overstate it. Are there ascetic tendencies? Yeah. There are, in fact, there's a um, there's a ancient rabbinic scroll called Megillah Ta'anit, the Megillah of fasting, and it actually lists days on which you are not allowed to fast. Now, if you list days on which you're not allowed to fast, people must have been doing a lot of fasting because you have to tell them you can't fast. You know, next Thursday you cannot fast, um, and of course you're not allowed to fast on Shabbos. So, in any case. Um, it's a very interesting question about how denial affects spirit in general. You know, people who fast on multiple days speak of, ha speak of having visions and things like that. It's a very, um, it, it's a religiously charged subject. Nonetheless, um, what the Torah makes provision for is that you can do this for a while, um, but you're not supposed to do it forever. Uh, that's one topic that Nassau raises that's really interesting. Uh, another topic that it raises that's pretty fascinating is the Birkat Kohanim, which we're all familiar with, the priestly blessing. Um, may God bless you and keep you. May God's countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God be with you and grant you peace. Um, may, or literally, may God lift God's face to you. Uh, the the Priestly blessing, first of all, is really interesting in terms of its um, structure. It's three words, five words, and then seven words. Yevarechecha Hashem v'yishmerecha, Yair Hashem panav elecha v'yichuneka, Yisa Hashem panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom. Three words, five words, seven words. It is respectively in terms of consonants. No, I did not count, but fortunately the commentary did for me. 15, 20, and 25 consonants. Um, and each one is a double blessing. Bless and protect, shine and be gracious, bestow and grant peace. And also, it says the, to the priest, this is how you should bless the people, but the blessing is in the individual, is in the singular, right? Yivarechecha, not yivarechechem. Um, so <clears throat> there are a lot of things about it that are... Um, fascinating and and you know this is what's traditionally associated with this this is how if you look at at ancient graves sometimes even in modern times of kohanim of priests they have these hands because this is how they held their hands over the kahal over the community when they did the priestly blessing and today when someone does the birkat kohanim under the talit if you ever see this uh, when someone does duchanin and they do the priestly blessing this is how they're holding their hands or supposed to hold their hands under the talit, which is why, if you were a Star Trek fan a long time ago, this is how Leonard Nimoy would bless. He got that from the Kohanim, because he grew up in a 
fairly traditional shul in Boston. Um, and I know this because although he didn't remember, because I once asked him, because I got to meet him a few times before he passed away, I actually came to the synagogue once um, to do, he was doing photography. Although he did not remember, my father remembers taking my mother out on one of her first dates and Leonard Nimoy was in a movie and my mother looked up at the screen and said, oh my God, that's Lenny. Because they both grew up in Boston and apparently once went on a double date together. She wasn't with him, she was with someone else. But then all of a sudden her double date appears on the screen. So I never told my mother he didn't remember. Um, but anyway, so that is a little Torah sidelight that very, very few, very few people uh, in the world of Torah are familiar with. Um, anyway, okay. So uh, there is also, as I said, there's also the priestly blessing, which raises the question of um, who blesses. Because the priests, after all, are the ones who, uh, who are the uh, designated blessors. And so this is a question that has arisen throughout religious history. What if you get a bad priest? Not that such a thing would ever happen, but let's just say you get a bad priest. Does their blessing still count? And um, obviously, as you would expect, the religious tradition is yes, because the priest is the conduit for the blessing, not the source of the blessing. God is the source of the blessing, right? That's why you say, Yivrecha Hashem, may God bless you and keep you. Um, and if God is the source of the blessing, the next question is, so why do you need a priest? Why doesn't God just bless directly? And there are lots of answers to this. Uh, among them is the idea that you want people to know that they have the ability to bless each other. That it shouldn't just be God's blessing in this world, that um, there's, you know, there's a lot in Jewish tradition about Jews being partners with God and, and, uh, and um, building God's tabernacle, for example, and building the temple. And so the idea is that you give people the power to be able to bless um, so that they will know that they're not unable in this world to bless and to do good and so on and so forth. And I think that it, um, it is actually a, great, a very empowering thing to be able to bless someone else, right? Um, so that's the second piece that I wanted to mention. Then the third um, is the offerings and uh, uh, the, um, it's 12, I think, chapter 7. Right, okay. Now, the chieftains brought their dedication offering to the altar. And, and they were presenting their offerings before the altar. And God said to Moses, let them present their offerings for the dedication of the altar, one chieftain each day. Now I am on chapter 7, verse 12. This is going to be a test, okay? The one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshon, son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. Does that name sound familiar to anyone? Great. Well done. You passed the test. 
Um, so Nachshon, when, when the Israelites come to the sea, the sea doesn't split until Nachshon jumps in. Now, you will not find that story in the Torah. That's a rabbinic story. So the question is, why did the rabbis choose this guy of all the possible people? And, and here is one of those interesting, it like depends how you shift the lens. So when I read this, what I read is, since Nachshon was the first one to present the offering, the rabbis thought, oh, he was probably the first one to jump into the sea. Because he obviously, you know how in every class, the first question is always the hardest. Every class that you have, whether it's 100 people or three people, to get someone to ask the first question is hard. And then everybody else asks questions after the first question is asked. The first one is the tough one. So Nachshon was the first one to bring the offering. And then everybody else will see the rest of the chapter is all people bringing offerings. So it makes sense that the rabbis would say, well, then Nachshon was the first one to jump into the sea. But because the rabbis don't see their own stories as having been motivated by the Torah, but as true in their own right, they don't say, well, since Nachshon did the first offering, let's make him the one who jumped into the sea. No, they say Nachshon is the first one who jumped into the sea. And therefore, he got the right of presenting the first offering. In other words, they make their own story prior and say that's why Nachshon got the right of the first offering. We who come to the Torah and know the Torah chronologically preceded the rabbis, we might say, in fact, I just did, that because Nachshon gave the first offering, they went and figured he was the first one to jump into the sea. So either way you, you do it, it's, it's kind of interesting that Nachshon represents this principle of initiative, of the first one to do something when everyone else is just sort of standing around um, and waiting for things to be done. And then, uh, oh, it's a great question that Claudia asked. Why didn't conservative Judaism keep Duchenin, which is a really powerful moment, she said, that's rarely practiced. So for those of you who don't know what Duchenin is, Duchanin is when you, when the during the repetition of the Amida, during certain services, when you do the Birkat Kohanim, the priestly blessing, the priests will go up on the bima. They will place the talis over their head so you cannot see them. They'll put their hands under the talis so the talis is extended and sway back and forth as they say the Yivarechecha. Um, there are even legends that you're not supposed to look at it, right? When, when kids are little, they think they'll go blind if they look at the people duchenin until, you know, one day they do and they don't. Um, so here is, this is a, this is an interesting, uh, I thought because it represents something larger that is a powerful trend in Jewish life. The reason the conservative movement didn't keep Duchenin was because it did not, at a certain point, it did not keep really the unegalitarian Kohen Levi Yisrael. It no longer thought Kohanim were more important than the Yisrael. All Jews were basically the same. Um, and also it kept egalitarian men women and the Kohanim were all men. 
So it said, like, it's not true that one section of, of the Jewish people blesses another section. We're all the same. And also there are female Kohanim, there are female right rabbis and so on. How can we have just men bless everybody? So they got rid of Duchenin. There was a professor at the seminary, Neil Gilman, um, of blessed memory, who was uh, taught philosophy, who was a radical egalitarian, like really very, very, um, very left-wing egalitarian, probably as much so as anyone at the seminary, but he really objected to getting rid of Duchenin for exactly that reason. He thought we made a big mistake because he said the moment is so religiously powerful that we've sacrificed that moment of religious power on the altar of being egalitarian and we haven't gained anything by it we've just lost so that's why i mean when i came here they didn't do duchenin this was 26 years ago they didn't do duchenin in the main sanctuary and i never instituted it but they do it in barad on the high holidays um and uh and i agree it can be very powerful um and uh what can I tell you? My successors are welcome to reintroduce it if they decide that they should, and I will be more than happy to, to be duchened. Um, so, but that's, that's the, that is the reason. And, and it's just like sacrifices in the temple, which were abolished when the temple was destroyed, and, and people think of them as barbaric, but the truth is not but the truth. Maybe they are in a certain way, but they're also much more powerful than sitting in fixed pews with an open book and praying. Like when you actually see an animal slaughtered to God that has a visceral um, impact that prayers and songs alone can't begin to approach. And the further, I would say almost as a general principle, the further you move from the primitive, the less emotional power things have. I don't know if any of you have ever gone to the K. Branley Museum in, in Paris, but I think it was Chirac who set up this museum. It's all African art. And you go into this museum and you feel a certain power in the primitiveness of the art that you don't feel when you go and see Monet's Water Lilies because there's something about being closer to the, to the real sources of life, less sophisticated, less, you know, layered and all of that, that is really strong. It's why music touches you, I think, in a way that it's very hard for literature to reach um, and, and so on. So all of those things I think are true and, and it's one of the reasons why we're a little bit removed from the world of the Bible and, and don't sometimes recognize the power that it has in it. Okay, with that, uh, K. Branley, it's called. B-R-A-N-L-Y, Branley. Okay, any, any questions or comments other than, yes, please. Let me just repeat that so people can hear who are online. She said she remembers growing up in Iran and her, her father or grandfather? 
grandfather was a shochet, that is a ritual slaughterer, and she remembers the enormous power of actually seeing that happen. Yes, please, go ahead. Who was this? Nimoy. Oh, Nimoy. Yes, go ahead. Ah, that's over. He said that they, they, he had, she had Nimoy over for Shabbat dinner, and they said on the set, give us a sign. And he said he was so nervous that all he could remember was his father giving the, the sign of the Duchnin, of the Birkat Kohanim. But if you, you'll see that sometimes in, in Jewish cemeteries. You'll see graves that have this symbol on it, and that means this is a Kohen buried in this grave. Um, Right. No. no. Only Kohanim can do Duchanin because the Kohanim are the ones who were the priests in the temple. And, and that's why this is also raises a great point about the Jewish tradition, which is, yes, the Kohanim were the priests in the temple. The great egalitarians in Jewish history were the rabbis. Because, as you said, in order to become a rabbi, you just had to be learned. And anyone could be learned. And so um, anyone, again, here, men, right? Until recent times. But, but in terms of like social status, <clears throat> it wasn't fixed and it wasn't only wealth. Like the learned person in the community had as great a social status as anyone else in the community, sometimes much greater. And, and in that sense, the rabbis were a very egalitarian movement. In fact, we know that um, People like Hillel and Akiba, the greatest of rabbis, did not grow up in rabbinic families and did not grow up with great learning and, and just by native effort and genius made their way to be, you know, um, enormously important. Yeah. Right. Right, you do it privately. We do the blood. Well, traditionally it was the father, but I, I mean, these days it's either one. And I also do it at a wedding, although I'm not a Kohen. We do the, the Birkat Kohanim. But to bless the people, at least in theory, you're supposed to be a Kohen, although apparently Jacob Cohn, who was a Kohen, um, used to bless the congregation. And I think I was told Ed, Edgar Magnin did that too at Wilshire Boulevard. I don't know if he was a Kohen or not, but it was a practice at a certain point. Um, and the reason that we bring the, when I came here, we didn't bless the B'nai Mitzvah with the Birkat Kohanim. And I instituted bringing them to the center of the Bema and having the rabbi and the cantor bless them. And the reason that I did was because I saw my, my father did that in his shul and I thought it was so powerful and such a beautiful moment that I wanted to, uh, to do it here. Um, but, uh, but yeah. At what point in what? 
It's pretty old. Blessing your children that they should be like Ephraim and Menashe is an old, or, or Sar Rivka, Rachel, and Leah is a very old practice. I mean, certainly in Eastern Europe, it's gone back many generations. I don't know when it first started. That would be worth, uh, worth checking out, but it's been going on for a very long time. It's not a new practice. Um, okay. Any uh, just, there are no other questions online, so yeah. So the blessing of your children starts really with, I mean, not just I, not Isaac's blessing, and then especially um, Jacob's blessing at the end of the, at the end of the, um, at the end of the book of Genesis. But Isaac does invoke God's name. Um, so I think the whole assumption is obviously that you can't, you can't bless someone through your own power. It's got to be by, you know, God having blessed them because God is the source of all blessing, right? Makor bracha, we even sing that in the, um, so uh, in Lecha Dodi, ki hi makor ha bracha. Uh, anyway, so that's, uh, yes. I guess, yes. Actually, their commentators talk about that. But they say, right. Um, he says, uh, he says, not um, speak to Aaron and the children and say, this is the, how you will bless uh, Israel. Um, and you will guard. And then at the very end, it's for guard my name. So, yeah, it's God who's blessing, but God is blessing through the medium of the uh, of the Kohen. And this same idea, by the way, was a huge, was the investiture controversy in the Middle Ages in the church, which was um, who gets to choose the priests and what do you do if a priest is bad? Does that mean that the blessing they've given you or the indulgences you've gotten from them don't count? And eventually the church made the decision, the only decision you can make, which is it doesn't matter if the priest is bad or not because it's ultimately with God. Um, because, you know, it's, it's like a legal issue. What happens if you, it's a fact, someone, someone just told me this story. Oh, someone told me a story that it was in Canada. I think it was Jonathan. It was in Canada at the time, and this was a while ago, the, in order to marry a couple, you had to be legitimately ordained from your movement, whatever it was, right? Um, you couldn't just do a state marriage if you didn't have ordination. And there was a rabbi who had done a bunch of marriages, and then they found out he didn't really have smicha. And they had to literally call all the couples and say, uh, sorry, but you need to get remarried. And what he said, what he said to me is a couple of them didn't. Um, so... Uh, so that, that like combination of church and state is a tricky thing. And, and you have to, at some point, you have to say, like, it doesn't matter how good or bad the clergy is, you know, it counts. Similar to this, by the way, was if people who've asked, I remember my father told me this. When my father retired, 
he took a he took a high holiday congregation and he actually during the year too in Palm Beach because the rabbi had left and they hadn't hired a new rabbi yet and they were could you serve as an interim rabbi and a couple of couples came to him and asked him to do a religious service without a civil service because of tax reasons God only knows so they wanted to be married but they didn't want to like pool their assets or whatever it is. I don't know what Florida requires, give all your assets to Disney, whatever it is that Florida is doing these days. Um, so, and the lawyers said to him, you can't do that because that's fraud. Like, just as you know, you have to be a religious person to do a civil, I, that's probably not still true. You can't do a religious ceremony without a civil ceremony. Because I've been asked that a couple times too. Um, and. Uh, like for whatever reason they want to do the civil service later they just want to have a Jewish wedding now but you can't do it because it's fraud so yeah I would say that's the human essence it's not the religious essence the religious essence is the hope that in fact it will help in some way the human essence is definitely showing caring, and it does. It's very powerful. In other words, the hope is that by giving a blessing to someone, God will somehow treat them more favorably. That's clear in whatever way, in whatever way depending on what the blessing is for. So if the blessing is for children, you're actually hopeful that God will grant them children. And, and even though it's a very difficult thing to grapple with and there are all sorts of theological problems with it it's clear when you ask God to do something that you hope that will in some way influence God right even though that's not it doesn't happen to be a theology that I'm comfortable with or believe in but that's the idea behind the blessing otherwise why would you say God please do this or God please do that unless God would say okay since you asked you know All right, many blessings on the week ahead. Oh, was there, was there, another, was there another question? Yeah, please, last, fine, let's, let's close with this, yes. Yeah. Yes. You absolutely can. Blessing can be like an, a, an expression of gratitude. Um, but so there are blessings that are bakashot, that are requests, and there are blessings that are expressions of either recognition of God's greatness, like when you say, um, when you see a, a sight in nature and you say, um, blessed be God um, who created the wonders of this world a recognition and also an expression of gratitude. So there are different kinds of blessings, but it's very hard to separate, even though ideally, like pure quote religion, separates request from God's being a gift store in the sky, it's very, very hard to, to separate entirely what you desperately want. I mean, it's easy to say, it's not nice to ask God for like, you know, for your team to win, but it's very hard to say, don't ask God to heal your dying mother. You know, that's, those kinds of requests, 
That doesn't mean that they're honored or that they're real or that God responds that way, but it's very hard to say to human beings, don't even ask that. So, all right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks.